Shall we begin in prayer? <clears throat> Father, we do come to rejoice. Rejoice in your great name. Rejoice in your wonderful salvation. Father, we come to give you thanks that we can't proclaim name above every other name tonight. And we're coming and ask you to meet us by the Spirit of God as we're together. As we consider your word, we might hear your voice, your voice to our particular need, your voice to our heart, and then that work by the Spirit of God to to cause us to understand it, and that wonderful work to cause us to embrace it. So we're coming and looking to you to, to meet us tonight for your praise and glory, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Our subject is life faith. What does it mean to live a life of faith? And as we've been going through here last week, we moved on to a subject, which again, on the same line, concerning life, because in the life of faith, the, or the issue is life itself. We want to spend some time tonight thinking about that further. See, Jesus didn't just come that we might believe. He came that we might exercise that faith in order that we might experience a life. And that is at the core of, of everything that we have to say. I'm going to suggest that at this point, if you understand this relationship, you're going to see the difficulties in, in faith. You're going to understand the problem of temptation altogether. If I can just get hold of the relationship between these two things. Last week we finished with this passage from John chapter 7. And Jesus stands up. I remember the first time I heard this, Mr. Carroll was speaking in this auditorium, I think. And he noted the great difference between what Jesus had done in the past and the way he presented this. He usually just talked to people, but this time he stood and cried. Cries out, yells, he's in the crowd there, and he wants everyone to hear, and he stood up and did it. He did it so that he caught the attention of everybody around him, and he says this, if any man thirsts, if any man thirsts, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And we come to that uh, passage, it's, it's always difficult, you can't read into a mind. I don't know what was in Jesus' mind at that time, I can never know what's in somebody's mind. What did he have in mind as he was speaking about this thirst? We know it had to do with life, because he's going to say later there in the next verse that if you do believe on me, if you come to me and believe, then out of your innermost being, out of the, the innermost part of your, or your life, will flow up, bubble up rivers of living water. That's a great promise. And so this idea of life, and because he had already spoken earlier in the book about the relationship of water and life to the woman at that well, uh, it's pretty clear that he's talking about life here, but how is he picturing life? Um, typically, we tend to, because of certain songs and the rest of it, think of the thirst as a thirsting after something, a desire that we have, something we want. And so we look at that side of the thirsting, which, of course, if you've ever been thirsty, it's pretty clear that's what you have, a desire to have something. Again, I don't know if you've ever really been thirsty, but you get really thirsty and it's uh, it becomes a consuming desire, a pressing thing, something you have to do something about. Now, in his world, in the Lord's world, to be thirsty was a little bit dangerous. I had a chance one time to to go to 
the desert above En Gedi. The desert, it was 115 degrees down there. We had to travel across dusty roads. He says, you put the windows up and you didn't have air conditioning. And we sat there in this little Land Rover cooking. But he says, here's the deal. You've got to drink. You've got to drink. You've got to drink. Because he says, if you ever get thirsty out here, we're in real trouble. You are in real trouble. <laughs> but he said, I'm going to keep on drinking. You have to keep on drinking because to be thirsty in that hot environment is not only a matter. It's a dangerous thing. There is a problem that comes with it. And we don't know which end is really in the Lord's mind because as he speaks about life, we have both ends of it are part of that search we go into when we're thinking about what does it mean to really live? We have two problems. One side of the problem is this, that we're insecure. We are a dying group and uh, we are in a dangerous world, right? I mean, we already know that because we just got through masking ourselves up and, and being in, in closets for the last two years because we were what? Afraid because it's an insecure world and there's a bug I can't see out there that has a dangerous implication to my life. But that's just one. We've got problems with inflation. We've got problems with crime. We've got, it's a dangerous world. We won't go into climates changing. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. In order to experience life, you have to have security. You have to have security. You have to have a sense that things are well, or else you're just trying to patch up the, the, the dike and somehow hold disaster away. When a person has that sense of security, the Bible typically uses the word peace. Jesus said he would give peace to his, his disciples. Right? And that typically is related to answering the question of the insecurities of our heart. The deep problems we have to live. And he's, he's speaking to real people about real living. So that's one side of it. But there is another side to it. If all we had was security and we were perfectly safe and there was nothing to do, we'd get bored, right? And that boredom reveals the other side of the search for life. We not only have to be safe, but we have to have a sense of, of a meaning to our living, which gives us, again, we have all kinds of words, fulfillment, gratification, self-realization, something that makes life worth actually living. Now, both of those are combined, in, I think, in this thought. When Jesus says to a person that if any man thirsts, we're all facing that. And if you think about those, they, they relate a whole lot to the reasons we have sin. If we don't answer those, sin comes into our lives because we'll be seeking for things that people are, and things are in the way of and we get irritated. So on the one side, we've got the searching for life by grabbing and on the other side, we've got the irritations with all those people that are out there or things that are out there or experiences that are out there that are thwarting my search. Jesus stands up in the midst and he looks at the crowd. It's a courageous thing to say. If you're thirsty, he said, come to me. Right? Come to me. And do what? And drink. He says, if you do that, this is an abundant promise. It's an amazing promise. What's he say? Out of your innermost being, from deep down within, the Spirit of God is what he tells in the future, in the next verse, that it's the Spirit of God is going to do something and it's going to well up. It's going to pour out. 
It's going to fill up and satisfy you. And there is an element it's hinted at. And I know we could be maybe pressing too far here, but there is also the element of this, that when that takes place and your life is satisfied, that it spills over and you begin to be an aid to the people around. Since that is a theme that comes up repeatedly, this idea of others being blessed by a person who's walking with God, it would stand to reason that the hint there actually is part of what the Lord's picturing. That not only are you satisfied, but your life could become something which blesses people who are also thirsty right around you. It's amazing. It's amazing. But I remember Mr. Carroll standing here and saying, he said, the most amazing thing about the whole verse is nobody rushed up there to find out what he meant he wasn't that that free offer was made and yet they didn't come up if you follow through the rest of the passage what happens is people walk away saying hmm sounds like a really great prophet huh sounds like he could be the christ and others were saying yeah and we better cut it off because he's not the christ and we've got to get rid of him it was all speculation but nobody is coming nobody's coming to ask and i I wonder, and I, I think about that, why is it that we as people didn't, don't, as a human race, don't rush to Jesus to see if he can fulfill this promise? I mean, I'm not saying again, I'm just saying nobody even came to find out if he could do it, at least in the passage. It doesn't say anything about them coming. And so I think we need to stop and think about that because it does point us to something of the problem that we're up against when it comes to faith and life and these issues. What's going on? Why is it that we don't come to God faster when His promise is so great? That takes us back to Genesis. The creation of man, His experience, and particularly the fall. So I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1, and I want to think about this, and we have to think about it very carefully, and I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. Um, I don't teach Old Testament survey anymore, but uh, I used to love to do this part. Wonderful picture. It's the only picture of, that we have in the Word of God until you get clear into the book of Revelation of what God had in mind for the human race. The way it could have been. The way it should have been. What He has in mind for me, for you, ultimately. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 after, um, follows the story of Him creating. And up until this point, all creation takes this form and he said and it was and he said and it was and he said and it was and it was good all right but now comes a change in the vocabulary it's an interesting change verse 26 then god said let us make man in our image let's make him there is a degree of intimacy in his making man that is different than the making of everything else and this is a, a proclamation of the entire Godhead. It is an interesting fact. Rachel Bonner points this out in his commentary on Genesis. This is the only time in the entire Word of God where the Godhead speaks as a unity. That is, they speak together. Every other time the Father speaks, the Son speaks, this person speaks, it's always singular. But at the very first point, it says this, let us, all of us, that's the, the Godhead, 
The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're all involved there. And let us make man in what? In our image. Has a lot to do with what he's going to say about them being made male and female. And the reason that, that there are differences between human beings, male and female, because they were made to be like God. And there are persons in the Godhead which are different, and yet they're one. A mysterious reality. But he says, let's make them just like us. It's also a precious thought there because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all agreed in this thing with the full knowledge of what it would cost to finish the work that He started that day. So it's not, and you never can get the impression that the Son was somehow forced to do what He was, what He did on the cross on the behalf of men at the very beginning. He was right there in harmony with the other members of the Godhead saying, let's us make him. Let's create this being. Let's create a being man and let's make him like ourselves. And that man would become the one that he had the first the first part of his creation that has the opportunity to actually fellowship with God himself. We are a creation apart. On this earth. Okay, so that's where it starts there. And then he tells us something else. And again, I just want to go through them quickly. It says, in God blesses, verse 28. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves. And then he says he gave the whole thing to them. It's real important to the story here. God gave them this entire earth. There's only two of them. Isn't that incredible? Adam and Eve. The world is yours. It belongs to you. When we get to chapter 2, um, God's going to leave it up to them to name everything. Right? What do you want to call that? Elephant? Elephant it is. God didn't tell them it was an elephant. Of course, he didn't speak in English either. But anyway, whatever. You know, however you get it. But whatever, whatever Adam says it is, that's what it is. It's his world. He has the right to do that in it. And God's not nervous about that. It's very important in the story. God's not nervous. He's not trying to take it back from him. He's given him enormous authority. He's given him responsibility on this thing. All right. He then creates his garden. And again, just this is real quick because we don't have time to get too far into this. But think of it. God could have made the world black and white, but he doesn't make it black and white, right? We have color. God didn't have to create the capacity for music, but he did. And Adam had that capacity. We don't know that from the story, but <laughs> the music wasn't the devil's decision. There's only one creator there who gave the capacity so that there could be music, so that there could be color, so that there could be all those things. Anyway, then he creates these, these fruit trees and, and things for Adam to eat. And they're not only beautiful, because it does describe that. They not only have beauty to them, but every one of them tastes good. It's all good. And Adam has no restriction on how much he can eat of it. Just eat it. Eat, take it. It's yours, Adam. I'm giving it to you. Now we get at the end of the story. Again, just as cutting it really short. He makes a wife for Adam at the end there because he says, this isn't good. It doesn't look like us. 
Adam doesn't look like us. I think that's important for us to realize in the story here. It's not just that Adam is, it's not good for him to be alone, but if he's going to be in the image of God, if he's going to look like the triune Godhead, then mankind has to have a, man has to have a counterpart. He has to have something which isn't quite him, but is him. And he creates a woman. And they, they meet and they are perfect for each other in every respect. They're called to, again, this is putting the two together, called to fill up the earth. So that means that the pleasures that God created for marriage and intimacy between people was his idea. And he gave it to them freely. That's very important because sometimes, again, I grew up with this, and it's easy in this day and time because of the situation we're in, to get the idea, and it's part of the problem we're going to talk about tonight, that God is out to stop us from experiencing anything. <laughs> you know, if, it, if, it, if it's fun, then quit, because it's probably sinful. Anything, and that God wants to squelch us. That's what the whole thought behind monasticism is, that somehow if you can escape pleasure, you'll beat God. Couldn't be farther from the truth. Couldn't be farther from the truth, because all of that was created by God, and all of it was given to Adam freely. This was his world, and he could enjoy it. But life was not in all those things. That wasn't his experience of life. What was the experience of life is he had a free and an open relationship with God. It is not described in detail. It just isn't described in detail, so I can't say too much about it. But the part that always hits me is that when Adam and God are speaking, Adam's not on his face. Now, later on, that holy worship will come because sin's going to come in and we reach, when we as sinners start to understand the holiness of God, there is a time when we have to bow. We have to. But Adam didn't have to. The relationship had never been broken. The relationship was open. It was free. It was intimate. It was deep. And that was the essence of his life. Right? That's, that's tremendous, isn't it? I think it's tremendous. And yet, yet, and here comes the important thing, he wasn't completely free. He wasn't completely free. And we all know that there's a tree. There's a tree in the middle of the garden. Now, the earth was approximately, as far as we know, was approximately the same size as it is now. And I think, I can't remember correctly, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I believe I remember correctly from geography, it's about 24,000 miles around. That's pretty big. I mean, if I just had all of South Carolina to live in, that would be great. You know, that's enough, that's enough space for a lifetime, you know. Again, of course, if you're not dying, it's... But Adam has the entirety of the world to live in. And in that, it says he, in the middle of that place, there was a place called Eden, and God planted a garden there, a special place for Adam to live. Now, it's hard to say anything again. There's just not a lot of details about the garden. The area that's described is very large, but how big was the garden? I don't know. I don't know. But in that garden, God put a tree, and he says, you can't eat this tree from this tree. You can't eat from it. That's the only thing you can't do. You can climb it. He didn't say you could climb it. But he didn't say you couldn't either. 
The one restriction on Adam and Eve was taking the fruit from that tree and eating it. That's the entire restriction. One tree on the face of the entire earth was put off limits. And in that limitation, there was the symbolic indication that God had the final say. That Adam did not have the last say. He had enormous freedom and God's blessing was all over him, but he was still the created being and had to give reverence and had to give way to God as the final one. All right. I think that's, that's so important. It's important to go through all that because sometimes we can think, well, she was under a lot of pressure. She never had to see that tree. But she did. And that's where I pick it up in chapter 3. And something happens at that tree which becomes important. And it, it teaches us why we have troubles today. Where our problems are and where the whole issue of faith lies. God has spoken now. He's given great blessing. He's given the restriction. And Eve, it's not Adam, it's Eve that ends up being tempted, but Adam will follow suit with her. But here comes the temptation in chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the serpent, and we're again, we are looking at one particular aspect of this. There's a ton to look at here in temptation and all the rest of it. I'm skipping quite a bit because I want to see one thing here. I'm not going to take time to demonstrate that we believe that that serpent is he's empowered. He is the manifestation of the devil himself there. That part is pretty clear from the rest of the scripture. We don't have time to go into that, but it's this is the temptation of the devil. And Eve and the devil and that tree all meet at the same place. Now she has complete authority. It is interesting to know that she has complete authority. If she wants to, all she just say, get out. And he's to get out because it is her world, not his world. He will be there because, and he'll continue to talk to her because she lets him. Not because he had a particular right to be there. But he was there, and he begins to speak to her. And he is going to put three things in front of her that are real important. Three, three big questions come up. I'm going to take them in a little different order than they're on your paper. Okay, the first one on the paper is that God isn't truthful, but the very first thing that he wants to question is whether the God that you know, the one who you have seen, walked with in the garden, whether he's really good. Is he really good? All right. Or first words, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He planted this big garden for you and he won't want you to eat from it. And of course, she realized that that wasn't true, but you understand what the, the problem is. The question is, is God being as good as you think he is? He's planted all this and he's not letting you have the fruit from it. She then makes a big mistake. She counters with a statement that makes God's word tougher than it actually was. When we, we go over this before, I used to tell me this. It's always important to remember because we all run into problems with this. Devil is always working in our minds to magnify the restrictions that God places on us and to minimize the blessing that he gives to us. Always. He's always doing that. Magnify the problems. Minimize the blessing that he's given. And that's what he's trying to get at here. Is, is he really good? 
she counters by magnifying the problem because she overstates the issue. She said that in the, there's only one tree that we can't eat from, but we can't even touch it lest we die. That's not true. That was not true. It was also very dangerous. Never change what God says. You can't, you're not helping people by making it harder than it's stated with the hope that that will keep them further away. Because if she picks that fruit, she's going to find out she doesn't die when she picks the fruit. She will only die if she eats it. The commandment is not to eat. She can be near it. She can put it on her table. She could decorate. It's very dangerous. She could decorate with it. She could do because it's beautiful. Everything God made was beautiful. <laughs> You know, the, the name of the garden itself, Eden, we probably, uh, if, if, Na- God, or if Adam named all the animals, he probably named the place too. You know what the word means? It means delight. Place of delight. It was all great. But she magnifies it. And once she does that, then, then the second problem comes up. Not only is God not good, but the question, second question is, is God telling you the truth? And he, he approaches this one on a direct contradiction of what God said. God said, you will die if you eat it. The devil comes in and says what? You're not going to die. It will not happen. I think about that one. It's kind of off our, our beam, but it's important to us. The whole human race is banking on the fact that God was lying when he said that sin leads to death. They just hope. They keep hoping that when they die, they go to a better place without going the way God said to go. They're hoping that he won't be as tough on sin as he said he's going to be on sin. God hates sin. And she doesn't know it, but if she takes the fruit, she's going to die. But the first thing that he, he is arguing against is the goodness. second thing he's going to argue against is God telling the truth. This should sound familiar because most people run up against that sooner or later. Is God that's out there really good? If he's good, why? How many times have you asked that question? Or been asked that question? If God is good, why are there hurricanes? God is good, why is there death? If God is good, why is there oppression? If God is good, why doesn't he step in and on down the line? Is God good? Second thing is, God says lots of things, I don't know, I just don't know. Is that what, could that really be true? Now, the devil has a plan, though, and this is what we got to get down to. He's after a purpose here. He has to get Eve to cross the line because he knows that if he can get her to step across the line where God has put the line, she will die, and he's out to destroy. And so she, he tells her what he or not believes. He tells her a lie. Now, what's that? He tells her that if you ate that, You're not going to die. And here's the problem. Here's what what God's doing. He's withholding this from you because he knows that when you eat this, you will be a rival to him. You will be like him, and he is so concerned to keep you under that he won't let you touch this tree. He wants you to be oppressed, and so he won't let you touch that experience. But here's the fact. This is the way he's presenting it. This is not a fact. This is the way he's presenting it. If you ate that fruit, you would be just like God. You wouldn't need him anymore. You would be free. You would be just like 
he is. Now, is that true? No, that's not true. We know that that's not true. It was never intended to be true. It was intended to get her killed. It was a trap. But at that point, she has two sets of information in front of her. Right? She has what God said and the evidence she has of God's goodness, which is surrounding her. Right? She has all of that. On the other hand, she has this set of information over here, which says that if I take that, I will become an enriched person, a fulfilled person, a person of, uh, I will have a better experience, and we, we have to put this in here, a better experience of life. But where is it? It's just on the other side of the purpose of God, the will of God. But that's because he restricts. Right? Now, in essence, and I want to get that on a piece of paper because we're going to, it's on your paper there. Um, <clears throat> Because I'm going to refer to this a lot of times throughout this, this teaching on faith. Here is the essence of his argument. That the fullest possible experience, we should put experience of life, is found in unrestricted use of the created world. Life is found in this created world, but it requires unrestricted use of it. Does that make sense? I hope that that... See, you're either going to find life in God, or the only other option is to find it right here. And that's what His promise was. That if you took hold of this fruit, which is part of the created world, God did make that tree. It didn't appear in some other form. It was there because God created it. He's restricted Adam. He said, you can't touch it. You can't go that route. But if you could, you would experience the fullness of life. But it's with something that's here. It's something that's on this created realm. It's in this, in this place that we live while, for us, while we're short, shortly on this earth. That's where it's, where it's at. That's what it's about. Now God said, what? His, his, I'm not saying it there, but hey. That's what the Lord's going to say later on. The experience of life is this. This is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. To know him is to live. To know him to live. Eve took that fruit. Right? We all know that. So we know how the story ends. Bad end. What happened? She found out that God was telling the truth. She died. Or at least it begins with a relationship being split with God. That open relationship that she had, that free and, and full fellowship with God, was, it was over. And then she began to die physically. She began to die physically. For her, it lasted a lot longer than it lasts for us, but still the principle of death that entered into the human race and we're done we're dying we're all dying people everybody here is dying we're, we're, there's nobody accepted from that all right and what was what's the worst part is the place of fulfillment that place of life was now an empty place and she has to fill it but she has no other place to go now she can't go to god for fulfillment. 
She has been cut off from God. And so she begins, the whole human race begins, to try to suck life out of a planet that was never intended to give life. Now again, I want to repeat, there are plenty of things to enjoy on this earth. This is not a thing that if I enjoy anything, then it's, I'm trying, no, he's not saying that. God gives all things richly to be enjoyed in a proper way, right? To be enjoyed. But the essence of life is found in him. And, and he comes and he, he says, the Lord in the New Testament, says a number of different ways. He says this, what would it profit you if you got everything there was to get and then you died? Where would the profit be if you gained, that he puts it this way, if you gained the whole world and lost your own soul. If the price to get it all was to lose your own eternal life, where's the profit in that? And again, when he says gain the whole world, he means have every possession you could possibly think of. He means having every possible authority that you could have. He means having every possible experience you could have on this earth. That's a, that's a lot. You know how people would squeeze that into a lifetime. But he says, what would it profit you if you did gain the whole world and then lost your soul? Right? In real sense, Adam did have the whole world. It was all his. His head. And he lost it, right? Where's the profit in all that? So what are we doing on this? What are we doing today? Well, how do we live today? Well, as a human race, we are in a desperate attempt to figure out ways to suck life out of this earth. It can come in the form of things, the desire to have things to fill up that gap. It can come in the form of experiences to fill up that gap. It can come in the form of relationships. We could go down the line. It can come in the forms of uh, businesses that you could have, that you could get a sense of, this is why I'm important. Everybody's thirsty. Everybody's trying. You can't help but try. Why is it we can't help but try? Because that powerful desire to know God doesn't go away just because the relationship's cut off. It's still there and it's still driving minutes and it takes us into all kinds of problems. So we are either, in our experience, every person in this room that has known what it is to live apart from Jesus Christ as life, as this, you are either in the experience of trying to grab something from this earth or being irritated with the things that are in the way of you grabbing it from this earth. If only I had unrestricted. That's why I thought in high school. That's why I had such a bad attitude towards God and a real respect. If only I wasn't restricted on this and this and this. No matter what the restriction might be. If, uh, again, if only I didn't have the restraints that God's put on sexuality. That's just a reality for me. Then I would really experience life. That's a real problem for a lot of people in this day. God says there's some things you shouldn't even look at. 
He says to look at that is to commit adultery. And yet it is an endless problem for people. Why? Because they honestly believe life is there. And they believe that this restriction of vision which God has put on mankind is keeping them from experiencing the depths of possibility of a life on this earth. And so we squeeze. We're squeezing hard. Now that's not the only way it comes. It can come in the forms of people being frustrated because they don't have the capacity to get all the things that other people can get. We're not all beautiful. There's an awful lot of frustration that goes with the idea that hey, if, if only you were beautiful, you would have real experience of life. If only you had a billion dollars in the bank, you would have the real experience of life. Now, most of us are trapped because we never get even close to that and we still believe that the guys who are close are experiencing life. That's why I think the book of Ecclesiastes, different approaches to the book of Ecclesiastes, but I think it's a real important one. Uh, Solomon attempted to find life, squeeze life out of this earth, and he came to the conclusion it's an empty, it's an empty exercise. And he had a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of wives. So there really wasn't a whole lot that men and women are seeking for that he couldn't get into if he wanted to. And he did. And when he got done with it, what did he say about it? It is empty. It is completely empty. That's the word of God to us. At least he went, he made the route. He's here to tell us, don't go there. The fact that you only have a couple dollars instead of a billion dollars isn't going to change it. If you had it, you wouldn't, it wouldn't work. And if you had this kind of an experience or that kind of a sexual experience, it's, it wouldn't work. And if you could change your sexes, it wouldn't work. And if you could, again, it's just restriction, whatever kind of restriction. Again, don't, not trying to get into particulars. I'm just saying that that's where the world is, right? If only I could be this. I don't know how many times in my lifetime I've, women tell me that if only they could be a man, they could, <laughs> they could find, they really wish that God had made them a man. I haven't had many the other direction, but I, I guess sure it's out there too. Because it's the belief that the way God has made me is what's restricting me from life. And that's the lie out there. So now God speaks to us. The Lord speaks to this group of people. Let's see if that's going to stay there. Yeah. The Lord comes and speaks to this group of people and he says, if you're thirsty, if you're hunting for it, here's what you do. You come to me. You come to me. Now, what is the issue of faith? Well, here it is. Every one of the people, every one of us in this room has two sets of information. It's either grab for all you can get out of this life between the time you're born and the time you die and hope you can find life in it. Or you come to God, you come to Jesus Christ, and you say, you promised to give life. And I'm going to ask you to fulfill that promise. Everybody's tempted. It's, it's, it's the same. Every temptation is the same thing. Is it in God or is it in whatever it is that you're tempted by? Whether your temptation is greedy or lustful or proud or whatever it is, frustration. And there it is. See, it's an issue of faith, right? See, we're going to talk about what, you know, how to have faith and what it does. But here's the, here's the core. Is, is life in God or is it in this earth? Do you get it for eternity or do you have to squeeze it out before you die? 
That's practically where everybody lives, right? When you preach the gospel, people listen to it, and they won't take it. And the reason they won't take it, not all of them, but most of them will not take it. And the reason they won't take it is they don't believe him. They don't believe he will come through. And they are going to cling to their toys and go to hell if they have to. Because they are so concerned or so distrustful of the living God. I'm here to tell you tonight, you can trust him. He made the promise, I didn't make it. He'll fulfill that promise, I can't fulfill it. But he will if we come to him. Take you back to that passage. If any man thirsty says, then come to me. It's such a sad finish. People walked away speculating on it. I'm going to challenge you tonight. Don't walk away speculating on it. Sometimes I look at that and I think it, it was time, but the Lord didn't do it. But time for an Elijah to step in there and say, don't just speculate on it. How long are you going to halt between two opinions if God's God? Serve him. If all this other is God, then serve it. Go ahead, but make up your mind. The living Christ is coming and says to us, what? If you're thirsty, struggling for where life is at, come to me. Come to me. What have you done about that? He's giving me challenging. Don't speculate on it. Don't think about it. Don't try to decide whether just come to him. Come to him. That's what he says. Come to him. Believe on him. Receive him. Trust him for what he says. He's ready to give life. He's ready to fulfill that promise. He's done it for many people in this room. I know that. He's ready to do it for you. What have you done about it? Let's pray. Mother, we come before you. We give you thanks for the great potential in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we're coming to ask you to speak to each one of us. We're all thirsty. We're coming and asking you for for those who are still hopeful in this earth for the fulfillment of their being. That you'll speak with a voice that wakes the dead, enables them to come to you, enables them to trust you. And we look to you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.